thank you very much uh, for the invitation to come. I know how important revivals are for churches, and so I feel very humbled uh, that you'd asked me to come and, and preach your fall revival. I uh, sure hope it's a blessing to you. Um, my, my program is kind of, I want to celebrate the church today, this morning and tonight. We're going to look at the church from a couple of different angles. And then uh, tomorrow night, I, w- I just want to have kind of a ministering type of sermon. Uh, the title is The Valley. And so if you're going through valleys in life, uh, you might find some encouragement uh, from tomorrow night's message. And then uh, I always like to talk about family. And so, Lord willing, Tuesday night, we'll talk about uh, the shelter and the storm. And that's the family and marriage, marriage and family. And then we'll close it off with confidence, uh, why you should be confident in your Christian faith. But today we're talking about the church. And isn't it interesting, uh, when God uh, uh, made man, uh, he made him out of dirt. Don't, please don't treat me like dirt, although that's just what I am, uh, the jars of clay. But he, uh, he made him and put him in a perfect place, right? Garden of Eden, had everything he needed. But he was lonely. And so God made a helper for him, a woman. And he saw Eve and he was no longer lonely. But the per- main purpose of marriage is intimate fellowship. It, it, now the Roman Catholics teach it, it's the procreation of children. That's why they are so adamant in prohibiting birth control, because if you prohibit birth, you're attacking marriage at its core. They are wrong about that. (laughs) It is not the main purpose. It is a purpose, but it's not the main purpose. The main purpose is intimate fellowship. Adam was lonely. He gave, God gave him Eve. And so we're built for companionship. And God gave us that gift of marriage and family. And from a family, he developed a nation through which he could communicate, the nation of Israel. And from that nation, he raised up a world kingdom. And tonight we'll talk about how it's even beyond the world. But this morning, let's look at what Jesus said the church would be like. Now, when he was here on earth, the church wasn't in existence yet. But he talked about it in Matthew chapter 16. Beginning with verse 13, he said, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to them, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Wow. Now there's also a misteaching that the church is founded on Peter. I say that you are Peter and on this rock, I'll build my church. Let me tell you why that's impossible. The original language Peter is in the masculine form. It is Petros, meaning a small pebble. Petra is in the feminine form, meaning a bedrock. They cannot mean the same thing. What what he's referring to, the rock on which the church is founded, is on the confession that Peter made, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the foundation of the church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Some of your translations say hell. No, it's Hades. It's the abode of the dead. 
And so Jesus is saying even his death is not going to prevent the, the kingdom, the church, from coming into existence or overpower it. And he said, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have already been loosed in heaven. And so what the apostles said had already been determined by God. Uh, whatever they allowed and whatever they forbid was already set up for God, uh, by God for that to happen. Now, as the church began, those first Christians, they were characterized by several things. First of all, they are characterized by a tremendous love for God. And they took seriously, they, I believe they loved God with their, all their heart, all their mind, all their soul, all their strength. I believe that's the kind of love that they had, which incidentally is the kind of love we need to have with God as well. They were also characterized by a commitment to Jesus Christ. And it was a commitment, not just yeah, commitment today, commitment if there's nothing better to do. Or It was total sellout commitment unto death. That commitment cost Stephen his life, stoned to death. It cost James his life, killed with a sword. It cost Paul his life, Tradition tells us he was beheaded in a Roman prison. And you can, talk, you can read Fox's books, Book of Martyrs and see the, the people who have died because of the faith. And ladies and gentlemen, you can look around the world today and you can see some of our brethren who have given their lives for the sake of the gospel. They were committed Unto death. Incidentally, we need to be like that, that kind of commitment too. And then they were passionate for people to see them saved. They were passionate for lost people. <laughs> One of the problems of, of being, becoming an older Christian is that you stop hanging around sinners. You hang around church people. You should make it a point to talk with lost people. And you should make it a point to pray for lost people. Your prayer list ought to have lost people on it. Because here's a truth. People who die without Jesus Christ go to hell. Plain and simple. So we ought to give them the advantage of knowing him. Now we are, that, that's a picture of the early church, early Christian but we're over 2,000 years downstream from that. Let me ask you, where's the river purest? At the headwaters, right? The Monongahela. I think that's the greatest name of a river ever. Monongahela River. If we could go up to the headwaters, we could get down and cup our hands, probably get a drink of water, right? Now, I live over near the Delaware River. I've taken men canoeing and camping down the Delaware 50, 56, 58 miles on the river. And uh, if we could trace the Delaware River up to the headwaters, we could get that drink of water. But on down river is Penn's Landing in Philadelphia. I would not recommend you take a drink of water from that part of the river because people have thrown all kinds of stuff into the river and have polluted it. 
And that's kind of what happened to the church. As we see it in Acts chapter 2, in its purest, that's the headwaters. But then through the years, people have dumped this false doctrine and, and these creeds and all kinds of things into the river. And so let's review a little bit about the church this morning. Let's celebrate the church, shall we? As a, now, Jesus never left Palestine when he was here on earth. But the apostles did. And as the apostles traveled, they would establish churches. And, and Paul uh, told, uh, told Titus in Ch Titus chapter 1, verse 5, for this reason I left you in Crete. And I think the Cretans said we're liars. <laughs> they, they said that about themselves. Not a nice place. Um, but I left you there that you had set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I have directed you. And so... The church where I'm at now in Community Christian Church, we don't have elders pray for us. We're, out of, we're not in complete order yet. Uh, I pray daily that, that God would raise them up. Uh, and so uh, elders and evangelists working together make the complete church leadership team according to the scriptures. And Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 tell us why God gave, Jesus gave the gift of leadership to the church. And, and <laughs> church leadership is a gift. They're not a burden. They're not, uh, they're not trying to ruin your lives. They're, they're, they're Jesus' gift to the church. In Ephesians 4, 11, he gave some to be apostles, some prophets. I clearly believe those are two temporary offices in the church because we do not have any apostles today, regardless of what the, the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, says, Mormons say they have apostles, impossible, because you had to have been a witness from Jesus' baptism to his ascension to be an apostle, to be qualified for, to be an apostle. And we don't have any prophets as in New Testament times, where they would, would uh, tell what God said and even predict the future and, and things such as that. Why don't we need, we don't need prophets anymore. Why? Because we have the completed word of God. We have the New Testament and so people that are always looking for some new word from God, they don't have faith in the word of God. Just have faith in the word of God. It's complete. And so they, they form churches overseen by local elders. Now those elders, oh, let, me, let me finish up in, in Ephesians. Uh, he gave some to be apostles and prophets temporary. And then he gave some to be evangelists. And pastor teachers, I think the pastor teacher is one man. It's not pastor and teacher, I think it's a pastor teacher. And so he gave evangelists, well, those who are sent to preach. That's what that word means. And then he gave elders, which, which synonyms are pastor, also bishop, shepherd, these are all synonyms of elders. And so for me, I am not a pastor. I am an evangelist. I was sent by the Walnut Street Church of Christ in Howard, Pennsylvania to preach the gospel. That is my, that's my life work. And so, and it's also interesting that, that we see why, God, why Jesus gave the church, church leadership. So that they could sit in meetings and dictate what happens in the church. 
<clears throat> wrong answer. He gave church leadership so they could equip God's people for works of service. And you thought you hired these preachers to do the work. You hired them to keep an eye on you. That's what you did to equip you so that you can do the works of service. So that's how it started. And one thing we learned very early on in the history of man is that God's people do not remain faithful for very long. Tradition says that Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden 40 days. That's it. And they're out. But after the death of the apostles, they started to depart from biblical polity, biblical government, biblical leadership. After the death of the apostles, the churches began to elevate one of their elders to be the ruling elder in the church. This is why I believe God set up the plurality of elders in the church so that there would be no ruling elder. What eventually happened was those ruling elders would get together and form a council and dictate what was going on in the local churches. And eventually they elevated one of their own. Well, actually in 606 AD, a Roman emperor, a politician, elevated Boniface to be the first universal bishop of the Roman church. And now Boniface, a mere man, is viewed as head of the Lord's church. Well, I have news for Boniface and all who have followed him. That position's already taken. Jesus, Jesus is the head, Paul said in Colossians, he is, head of the, he is head of the body, the church. The church isn't two-headed. It has one head. Well, in the early 16th century, a guy by the name of Martin Luther led a sweeping movement to reform the Catholic church. Surprise, surprise. He got excommunicated. <laughs> you don't challenge him like that. But his work uh, did a, a lot of work. It, it led to the eventual Protestant Reformation. And that movement did a lot of good. It put the Bible in people's hands. Before the Reformation, there used to be a curtain that would separate the clergy from the people. And the Bible was always kept behind the curtain. <laughs> and so what the reformers did was the first thing is to tear down that curtain and give the Bible to the people. And Gutenberg and his printing press and uh, reminds me of a guy that picked up an old Bible, went to his friend and said, I picked up this Bible. It's a good, a good, a good. And he said, a Gutenberg? He said, yeah. He said, you know how valuable that is? He said, nah, some fool named Martin Luther wrote all over it. <laughs> Luther's followers protested over the unfair treatment given to the Catholics by the German authorities. So they became known as Protestants, Protestants. 
And there are pr many Protestant denominations, the Lutherans, of course. And it just blows my mind. Luther said, do not call yourself Lutherans. Call yourselves Christians. We have the Lutheran church. Presbyterians, Baptists, Methodists, Episcopal, Church of England, all of them springing up hundreds of years after the church that Jesus established. In the early 19th century to the earliest 20th century, a movement started and advanced to restore the church as found in the New Testament scriptures. It became known as the Restoration Movement. A lot of good people in that movement. Thomas and his son Alexander Campbell, Barton W. Stone, Raccoon John Smith, J.W. McGarvey, and many others, each different. Most of them didn't even know each other, but they all had a common respect for the Bible as God's word. And they encouraged the departure from party names, denominational names, and the creeds that come along with them. And only, the only creed that we have is Christ. And so they, unlike Luther and Calvin and Wesley, whose works resulted in new denominations, the Restoration Movement simply pointed people to the ch church that's found in the New Testament, the original church that Jesus built. Since that time, since the time of the first church, well, today, there are over 200 denominations in America. Let me ask you, if you go to a Catholic church, what do they call you? A Catholic. You go to a Baptist church, they call you a Baptist. You go to a Methodist church, you're a Methodist. You go to an Episcopal church. I call them the Episcopopolopians. <laughs> but Episcopalian. You go to a Christian church. What do they call you? Christian. A Christian. No name but Jesus. So much confusion that the denominational world has created has turned many people off and they hear the word church, they say, who needs it? <laughs> well, I want to encourage you today and I want to tell you just very quickly why you need the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, we have seen that Jesus is head of the church. He's also the founder of the church and he is the foundation of the church. These people that say, Give me Jesus. Forget about the church. You can't do it. Because the church is his body on this earth. The terms of admission into the church are also the terms of pardon. When you become a Christian, God adds you to his church. It is Christ's body, his representation on earth. It is the means by which we connect with God through the church. And you need the church for your spiritual survival. If you, if you cut a, God forbid that you'd have to have your hand amputated, what would happen to that hand? 
it would die and your body would hurt. That's what happens in the church when people leave. You think you're going on to greener pastures. Sometimes that greener pasture is over a septic tank. But anyway, it hurts the church when people leave. And you will not survive spiritually without it. You know, old Noah and his ark. The Bible said that Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord. And he built an ark and brought the animals on. And when that ark came to rest on Mount Ararat, he came out to a new creation. What would have happened if Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord and never built the ark? Would he have been saved? No. What if Noah would have found grace in the sight of the Lord and built the ark, but never got on it? Would he have been saved? Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord. He built the ark and he got on it. He obeyed God fully and was saved. Let me ask you, how many arks were there? Just one. How many churches are there? Just, well, the church of Jesus Christ, one church. One door on the ark. There's only one way to God. That's through Jesus Christ. There aren't many paths to, to God. There's one path, and it goes through Christ. One window in the ark. Somebody said, I bet that's where gambling started. Before the flood came, they were betting how long Noah would stay on that ark with those stinking animals. But uh, just one window. And there's only one light source in the church. And it's not these lights. It's the scriptures. Your word is a light to my path, lamp to my path, a light unto my, my steps, all that kind of stuff. And only those who are on the ark are saved. And only those who are in Christ will be saved. That's awful narrow-minded, isn't it? But it is a narrow road that we're on. And those first convict, converts, almost said convicts, those first converts heard the gospel. Ah, that gospel that they sang about. And that gospel cut them to the heart. Just tore them to pieces. Where they cried out, what should we do? And Peter, big mouth Peter, simply told them what Jesus told him to tell them. He recognized that they had believed the message that he just preached about the gospel. So he says in Acts 2.38, repent, turn away from your sin and turn to God and be immersed, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And there are two immediate promises, the forgiveness of sin 
and the gift of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. That's what they did. And and Acts 2.47 says that the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who are being saved. Folks, we, we don't ask people to do any more or any less than what they did in Acts chapter two. God gave his plan of salvation and he has never rescinded it. He's never come up with anything different. It's still the same. So do you need the church? Yes, a thousand times, yes, you need the church. And are you on the ark of the Lord's church? Now, I've heard the figure, don't know if it's right, but I'll just throw it out there. That there are about a million, a million and a half dwellers on earth during Noah's day. However many were on planet earth, only eight were saved. But you had to be on the ark to be saved. Only eight people were ready for the floodwaters. The rest were swept away suddenly. And only the Lord's faithful will be saved when judgment day comes. All others will be swept away. There's a great day coming. A great day coming. A great day coming by and by. When the saints and the sinners shall be parted right and left, are you ready for that day to come? There's a bright day coming. A bright day coming. A bright day coming by and by. But its brightness shall only come to them that love the Lord. Are you ready for that day to come? There's a sad day coming. A sad day coming. There's a sad day coming by and by. When the sinner shall hear his doom, depart, I know ye not. Are you ready for the day to come? Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready for the judgment day? If you're not, you can be this very hour. If you'll simply do what they did in Acts chapter 2, the Lord made promises to you that he will forgive you. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. The Lord promised he will forgive you and save you. And the Holy Spirit will take up residency in you. And his main ministry is to make you as much like Jesus Christ as he possibly can. Has there ever been a better man? I was discipling a Jewish fellow one time. I gave him a NIV study Bible, the nearly inspired version. And I asked him to read John. Because John wrote to prove that Jesus is God to the Gnostics. So Larry's in bed with his wife, reading John. And he gets to John 3.16. He said, Lisa, listen to this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And Lisa looked at him like, you've never heard that verse? 
<laughs> she was a Presbyterian. We eventually baptized her into Christ, but not Larry. But Larry said, this Jewish guy said, I don't understand why anyone would want to put to death a man like that. Me either. But they did. And he is worthy of my life to give him my all. How about you?